Well, 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 welcome to the end of the week. Uh, and we're uh, excited to be doing a nose today where we all went to see Dumbo, not the 64-minute 1941 version of it, but the brand-new version that's two hours long, directed uh, by Tim Burton and starring uh, Colin Farrell in one of his classic hangdog roles. Um, Colin Farrell's sad face is really great, I think, actually. So um, he's kind of a resting sad face. That's really good. So anyway, we're not going to talk about that at the beginning. Instead, well, first of all, uh, Mick Jagger has had heart surgery. That's, like, not supposed to happen, right? Rolling Stones are Rolling, – there's no heart surgery in Rolling Stones. That doesn't really roll off the tongue. But you see what I'm saying here. Also, we're going to talk about extreme bagel slicing, although I think we're going to talk mainly about – People fighting about things like extreme bagel slicing. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> how that conversation is going to go or any of the other ones as far as that goes. And we're going to begin with a, a conversation from the world of the sportsing. We don't usually talk about the sportsing on the nose, but everybody wanted to talk about this. And when I say everybody, I mean Rebecca Castellani, the Director of Venue Operations and Tour Marketing for We Save Music. Uh, John Dan Cossey, Executive Editor of the New England News Collaborative and the host of The Wheelhouse and Next on WNPR. Parenthetically, I would add that Lily Tyson, the producer, basically the entire staff of Next is working on the nose today. So it should be like the next nose or something. Uh, and so anyway, Lily is producing today. We're so excited about that. James Hanley is a co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. I should mention that they are showing the 4K two-part restoration. This is a commitment, ladies and gentlemen, of Bernardo Bertolucci's, uh, well, I call it 1900. Am I supposed to call it Novecento? Novecento is Novecento. the original title. Novecento. <laughs> so it's part uh, one is uh, Sunday through Wednesday and part – oh, no, wait a minute. Yes, yeah, so this Sunday through this Wednesday That's part is one, part yeah. one. So part one goes from Sunday through Wednesday? <laughs> right. no. no, you can no, go see it. No. You okay. can go see it on those days. And then you essentially wait a week. Uh, and then you, next Sunday, the 14th, you, you start having the chance to see part two Do through, it. through the end of that Wednesday. Do it. Yeah. So anyway, it's really – actually, I think the only time I've ever seen 1900 is at Trinity Cine Studio. Right. Actually, we premiered it when it first came out right. and uh, it was particularly notable because every, every show sold out. It was really a very popular film at the time and uh, it hasn't been restored until now. But very look, cool. if you're ever going to see this movie – you should do it this way. I mean, this is a movie that you really should see on a really big screen with really good equipment. And I don't know, 4K sounds good, too. That sounds like really – I don't really get all that stuff. But, I mean, just do it this way. Don't go try to watch it on your Samsung. That would be pointless. Uh, all right. So we're going to begin in the world of the sportsing and specifically a, a piece by Will Leach, a frequent guest on this show, uh, called The Era of the Old Athlete is Over. And so uh, he points out that for the last five years, he's written a top 10 oldest players in baseball story right before the season starts. Five years ago, there were nine players, 39 or older. Today, there are only three. By next year, I bet there will be none. And that this trend kind of spreads across uh, the rest of sports, even golf now, it's just not cool to be uh, John Daly anymore. You've got to be able to hit the ball really far. And, and, so, and, and so it's just hard, harder and harder to be Crash Davis in Bull Durham. Although I'd like to point out that Bull Durham is mostly about Crash Davis's anxiety about the fact that he is becoming increasingly useless. So this isn't in, entirely a new trend. So um, it turned out everybody wanted to talk about this, which surprised me. <laughs> Actually, so I don't know, John. Get us started. How did you? Like, what did you pull out of well, this? Well, there's there's a few things about this. One is I, I uh, like Will. I love looking at who the oldest Major League Baseball players are. It's sad to see uh, see that Bartolo Colon 
uh, the somewhat rotund pitcher formerly of the New York Mets and almost every other team in the league uh, isn't in baseball this year, uh, hoping to get to 50 years old. But the real thing that comes home to me right now is two things. Minor league baseball, which we're going to talk about with Rebecca in just a second, and also the NCAA tournament, which is going on right now. In both cases, I think it has less to do with what Will is talking about, where the young athlete has such great advantages over the older athlete physically, and that is why we celebrate them. I am just consumed with this idea that we that we care about the younger athlete because they're cheaper. Because in the case of NCAA basketball, you can get them essentially for free for the price of a scholarship. And in the case of minor league baseball or people with the first couple years of their career, you can get them for relatively cheap. And that's, I think, the kind of insidious part about this, Colin, is, yeah, we've got young, talented people, but we're sometimes putting people into the spotlight before they should be, and we're doing it in large part because they don't cost as much as the 39-year-old. Well, I would especially say in the NFL, this is also really, really true. An NFL rookie is invariably very, very cheap. Uh, and the chance of that rookie kind of literally surviving long enough to become the kind of player who makes insane amounts of money is also relatively low. So it's like they really have you kind of coming and going. So, so yeah, Rebecca, we don't usually go to you uh, for major for minor league baseball. Usually, uh, never. <laughs> but but who knew? Who, who knew? knew? So, yeah. So tell us about your brother. Yeah. So my brother is 24, and he plays professional baseball for the Florence Freedom. Um, and it has been a very interesting ride for him. He came out of uh, playing baseball at Bucknell and was did very well there. He's a six foot three left-handed pitcher, I'll add. And this kid has taken his career more seriously than anybody I know. He does not drink. He's never smoked. He works out all day long. All he does is care about pursuing this dream. He's been single-minded to the point of, in my opinion, insanity. But this is his dream. So last year he was drafted to the Florence Freedom. The whole process with that was a nightmare. They called him in. He drove all the way down to Kentucky, was there for a week. They said, you know what? We actually don't need you this year. Go home. He drove all the way back home. And two days later, they called him back and said, actually, come on back. We need you now. So Michael spent two weeks driving back and forth. He got paid 600 bucks a month for two months of play. The clock starts the minute the playtime starts, but there is no compensation for all of the hours of practice that you have to do. They live, you know, there's an article that we had read for this saying, you know, guys living five to a room. That's very typical. Bunking together. This year he got a $100 raise, so he's up to 700 bucks a month and is on the roster. He plays for three months. That's it. And then they are expected to stay in the same condition that they are in on-season, off-season. So Michael's life is driving two and a half hours to a gym in Boston where he trains and teaches pitching classes. He makes no money, and he's happy living his dream. But, I mean, there is absolutely – and he, he gave me a very thorough kind of walkthrough about the contract system with this and how after you sign this minor league contract, which lasts for five years, and if at that point during any period during that five years you want to get called up to the MLB, then you start a three-year clock. And basically what Michael was telling me is that it's the whole system top to bottom is broken because you've got these young guys that are – not making any money, that are kind of getting bumped around in the minor leagues until the majors decide that, okay, now we want to start the three-year clock on this person. And then they're signing these huge contracts for millions and millions of dollars, which the players, have, it's all in their interest to bring that up because they've just been spending you know, five years in the minors making 600 bucks for three months of the year. So it's just from beginning to end a mess. I mean, the league makes so much money off these guys. They own all the rights to their likeness, their image, anything like that. So they're making tons and tons of money off these guys and paying them. Next to nothing, no insurance, nothing like that. I would like to point out, as I always do, 
that, uh, for example, the Solomons who own the Hartford Yard Goats pay no salaries to anybody essentially. Uh, so all of the athletes who play for this particular owner are paid by the Colorado Rockies, <laughs> as are the managers, the trainers, everybody else. I mean basically if you own a minor league baseball team like the Yard Goats, you just sell tickets and yep. keep the money. And jerseys. Um, yes, and jerseys and stuff <laughs> like that. So James, um, you know, we're all living – or not all, but statistically we're living longer. Although there's an argument that we are – our usefulness – uh, our ex- expiration date is coming a little faster, even if we're not professional athletes. Well, yeah, I think that in general, that's something that really bothers me because I think there's a real fine sort of life balance between the youthful skills that you have physically and the knowledge that you were acquired that you acquired during that time, and that makes you a more sort of well aware, well rounded person who is actually beneficial to so many things in the sport or in, in, in any trade, for example, with experience. It's not just in sport. I think it's generally valuing what human beings, the human being trajectory is where you reward, like, like for instance, what about, uh, you know, college basketball, for example, where there's, the, 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 there's this an organization that makes billions of dollars off the enthusiasm and skill of young players and those young players are being given very little at that point because of the idea of them getting more money later. But the whole system that that encourages means that you you, you skew the valuation completely that um, you're not really – what it, what I'm getting at, I guess, is that the rewards are hidden, that these judgments are made by people who are doing hidden investments essentially. Hedge funds want to invest and everybody wants to invest and get their money back and of course now – Nobody's satisfied with getting their money back in five years. They want it back on Monday morning. And so they're looking for something that is absolutely in opposition to the nature of an athlete or to the nature, the trajectory of an athlete's career. That really bothers me. I mean, because I, I, I love watching, you know, good players uh, in any sport at a young age with the sort of prowess they have at that age. They don't have experience and you see them learning. But it's bothersome that the money machine that lies behind it doesn't directly reward them for that. Uh, and it, it, it's, again, a kind of short-term thinking, which is my current sort of bugbear is that, that everything is about short-term thinking. What can you do by next Monday instead of thinking, you know, 10 years out? What somebody's life, what is their value 20 years out? Yeah, and I think a, a big part of this this piece is really putting yourself in, in the position of, okay, what was I like when I was 24 years old, right? When I was 24 years old, I didn't know anything. My brain's not fully formed. I've got my whole life ahead of me. I don't know anything. Because, Rebecca, your brother is a left-handed pitcher, he stands a slightly better chance than a lot of other people. But if he's a left-handed pitcher at 24, there are any number of scouts out there saying he's kind of washed up. If he hasn't already gotten to a level above where he's playing by the age of 20 or 21, just don't even worry about playing anymore because you're not going to make it to the major leagues. Now, I get that that's the business that they're in right now. They understand that that's the business that they're in right now. But it seems like an an awful, gigantic shortchanging of someone's 
uh, life potential. Yeah, and it's it's cashing in on you know t- saying to these guys like your dream is what's going to pay your bills. Exactly. You, they're yeah. banking on the fact yeah. that these guys are hungry, and you know Michael has wanted this his entire life. That's exactly the kind of person they want because they know he's not going to push back. I forced him to make him show me my co- his contract this year, <laughs> and I said, "What if you just negotiated this here?" You know, I'm coming at it from a music point. I'm like, "Okay, we could just what about that?" And he goes, "Rebecca, they would just release me if you make any sort of wave." Bye bye. It's not about your talent at this point. It's how much they can control you and get you to say, well, you know, this is what I really want to do, so I guess I'll suck it up. I, I, it's a textbook description of exploitation. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So we're heading into the final four weekend, uh, and uh, I was listening to On Point earlier today, and uh, one of their well, – some basketball analysts uh, that they had on, former coach, was pointing out that, um, in fact, there's like I think only one freshman uh, starter of among the 20 – starters that there would be in the final four. Uh, and so that, you know, the other teams are relying on grizzled veterans, which is to say people who are 21 or 22 years old. Um, but one of the things that college athletes have done at an elite level anyway, and this is very much the case of Duke this year, is they get to know each other in AAU ball or whatever, and they kind of say, okay, let's all go to Duke for a year. Let's all go to, let's three or four of us, okay, let's go to Kentucky for a year, and then we'll go to the NBA. Uh, so there's a little bit of that, of them kind of grabbing the reins uh, a little bit, whether that's, I don't know, I guess that's a good thing. The college thing to me, like, I, I get the argument. I mean, I see how much money colleges are bringing in off the backs of these young players that aren't making any money, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're also there for a school opportunity. A lot of them have scholarships and things like that. It's when you're out and you're doing this as your career, especially for baseball, and they're not paying you a living wage and there's no union or anything to support them. That's where it just kind of head scratch. And while I completely agree with you that the fact of the matter is, is that if you put together all of the minor league baseball teams in America that operate like the one that your brother's on uh, and and you put them all together, they won't make as much money as one of the top basketball programs or top football programs uh, that are in the NCAA tournament or end up in one of the bowl games. That's where the real money is made. And that's where, to James point, the real exploitation takes place. It's not just that the young athletes who go to college aren't able to get a little something from the college. They're not able to sign a contract for an endorsement for their likeness. They're not able to take a job at Domino's delivering pizzas because that would be a conflict. If you are a star scientist, you can take a job at Domino's or you can take a job at a lab making money. You can't do that if you're a college basketball player. And that seems to, I think, a lot of people blatantly unfair. Actually, to your your point about uh, about, uh, in, in school, that if you're a scientist doing research and you're willing to sign on to a program sponsored by a commercial operation like United Technologies or somebody else at UConn, you get you, you get money. You get you you get uh, your your reputation is burnished. You actually start a career yeah. and you have something of a foundation and you're valued for that. And you may well discover something that gets your name known even better. And that's that that is there's nowhere any sort of way of doing that within the sports within the sports. Well, they have to make sure that you don't give that Matt Damon speech about the NSA from Goodwill hunting. You know, you have to like explain why you're not going to do that. All right, we have to uh, switch to something really serious, which is how bagels are sliced. You may have missed this, although it almost broke the internet this week. Um, so a guy named Alex uh, Alec Krautman uh, said he posted a picture of so, so-called St. Louis style sliced bagels. It's, it sort of looks as though the bagels have been put into a paper shredder or something. But I guess it's just sort of a commercial bread slicer, so that each bagel is sliced into. Lots of really thin slices. Am I explaining this well? Yeah, I mean, think about how a bagel is normally sliced and then just flip the bagel in the other direction, right? Right. If a normally sliced bagel is sliced once, 
a, a long way so that there's holes on either end, right? This is just shredded. You just put the bagel in the wrong way, and it makes a bunch of little tiny bagel shards. So BuzzFeed reported that St. Louis area Paneras are equipped with special automatic bread slices, uh, splicers that do this. And then, but people got really upset. And I guess, I don't know, like people just fight about food on the internet or is that just like a thing, right? You know, or, I think people fight about everything on the yeah. internet, Colin. But right. I think food is especially prevalent. And I think bagels are especially prevalent because there's really not a lot of people that hate a bagel, but everyone's very particular about how they like their bagel. You know, right. you're either in the toasted, not toasted camp, not toasted, you're kind of, that's a red flag. You know, you're either butter or cream cheese. <laughs> you're either, I want my plain bagel or my everything. And I think now that someone has decided the next big thing is we're going to talk about the way we slice a bagel, which for so long has just been the standard cut. You know, the people that cut those bagels in half and have two halves of a bagel, like, what are you doing with your life? But this is like a whole nother level because you're ruining the integrity of a bagel. It's not a bagel anymore. It's bread. Could it be that the bagel industry futures are failing and they're looking for to get I mean, this could be a attention. genius marketing scheme. You think Alex Krautman is a plant? I, it's like the Fiji I wonder, water you know, I, It just makes me think, you know, that, wow, you know, how do we get people to come back to these bagel places? You know, these one product bagel fronts. Uh, how we're, we're, our sales are, you know, getting a little weak. So get everybody on the internet all in a lather Fire. about well, slicing. One of the reasons that this might happen, indeed, is because you see uh, the showing up all over the place. People are very concerned about their carb intake, and there's thinner and thinner slices of bread coming out because, right? <laughs> and this is really what this is. I'm going to have a bagel, but I'm just going to have a thin little slice of a bagel. The problem is when you slice a bagel this way. Let's say you like the toppings, the, the toppings that come on it, like the everything topping, which is a lovely topping. You slice it this way, you get a little tiny, just a hint of this topping and a whole bunch of just doughy bread. Nobody wants that. You put this in a toaster. It burns. It's too thin. You, you can't do anything with this. It's not a bagel anymore. Not to mention the fact, Colin, that Panera doesn't actually make bagels. True. I mean, a Panera bagel isn't a bagel. No. So that's a problem in and of itself. Maybe, actually, we should have stopped right there. It's a bogus if, bagel? If, if Panera makes a bagel, it's not really a bagel. Slice it however you want. Right. It's like, you got to get a bagel at a decent place. Why not just buy a bag of bagel chips, which are already sliced this way and toasted to perfection without you having to go through all the rigmarole? Lightly salted. They're yeah. lovely. See, I, I like bagels, and I used to be even sponsored by a bagel chain, oh. which I will not mention uh, in back in my commercial days. But I, like to me, they're not... Like a bagel is not an interesting enough thing to be having a huge fight about all the time. You know, it's like it is sort of like like carbohydrates kind of, you know, prepared in a pretty. But I mean, I'm wrong, clearly, because there are just wars about this. Sam Haddleman, who you're going to hear a little bit later in the show today, told me that in Florida, there's um, there are places that you go that advertise. They have Brooklyn water. They bring in water from Brooklyn Come on. for the boiling of the bagels <laughs> because people in Florida don't want to eat bagels that weren't boiled in water from Brooklyn. That, can't be, that sure. can't be real. No, I, that cannot be real. I, I, that was my reaction, but Sam is sure. So there's a truck that drives down with Brooklyn water to yeah, Florida Sam to make assures me that, that is the case. I can't and, deal with and, that. You know, and the only place that's more insane about bagels than New York and John, I think, will back me up on this, is Montreal. Montreal where they, they have, like, real horrible fights about who has the best bagels. And, and there's places where you have to wait in line for 45 minutes to get it. Like, how good can a – how much better than the next best bagel can something – can a bagel be? I wouldn't wait 45 minutes for a bagel. No, I, but it's – 
you're absolutely right, Colin. It's not just about bagels. People have very specific feelings about certain types of food, and they get that. And when we, yeah, when we start driving the bagel water down to Florida, <laughs> we have probably gone a, a little too far. I can, just, can, I can just imagine the opportunities for fraud here. I think I got to get into this business. <laughs> Prove it. Prove it from Brooklyn. They've got a blind taste tester for quality control. He's like, well, I don't know. This doesn't taste as hipstery as the last Brooklyn batch. Water. <laughs> But why St. Louis, too? Why does St. Louis like the bagel sliced this way? This is right. another thing. It's, this is a regional difference. People in St. Louis want their bagels sliced. My roommate, my college roommate is from St. Louis. So the first thing I'm doing after this is calling her because right. I didn't know. I'm well, going to blame her personally if this I is I guess one of the memes that came out of this was like people on the internet posting other things cut up in preposterous ways <laughs> and saying this is whatever, St. Louis style. St. Louis styles kind of turned into this joke. Well, I mean, I, I, sur- I think another purpose of bagels is wherever you live that isn't New York – or Montreal, I guess, you get to say there are no good bagels here. Sure. You know? Very <laughs> true. That's right. You live in Los Angeles, you get, well, there's, you can't get a good bagel here. You know? <laughs> so, so basically, like, the bagel is the hipster embodiment. I mean, it's the, if you're not from New York and you don't know and you don't drink La Croix, then you've got no business saying you're a right. bagel. It's sort of like antimatter or something. Yeah. Like, it's like the absence of the good bagel is a much more poignant thing, I think, than the presence of the good bagel. Anyway, with the remaining time that we have, we do. I don't know. Like I, I sort of like I hesitate to turn this into a cultural conversation. But on the other hand, there's something weird about the fact about the idea of Mick Jagger having heart surgery. I mean, this is like never really supposed to happen, right? I mean, I mean, James, the Rolling Stones are supposed to be the embodiment of you know be able yeah. to, to live profligately and <laughs> and pay no cost for it, right? And and when you consider, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's it's really makes you think about uh, the plan for their tour. And the, their ages, you know, and what they're going to be doing and what they're expected <laughs> to be doing. But I think there's this feeling, I mean, on their last tour, there were all of these articles about how they, the, the, the foods they were eating and like how they were going to be taking care of the, the how, how they had all of these operations to support them and stuff like that. <laughs> but then along comes this sort of reality of something, something like that. And then these stories, I don't know how much to believe really about how the magic surgery, you know, and this, this, it's very simple now to do this. I, I, I mean, replacing your heart valve, even if you're doing it laparoscopically, it's, that's a serious operation. But it's, it's like, it, I mean, I think they're clinging, Mick Jagger in particular is clinging on to what he loves doing. And so um, he's going to do this. But it is a reminder of like the, 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 the stress of doing it. And sort of the, the, the idea we have that everything could be fixed, you know, that everything will be just fine. And uh, I, I, you know, there's a certain appeal to that, but you also have to recognize that how old he is, how old you are, and I mean, recognize that there are limitations, perhaps. Well, and he's going to he's going to go back to being the Mick Jagger that I suppose we've all known for a while. He dances around on the stage. I mean, look, I'm going to talk about this later on when I do endorsements, Colin. But you did a wonderful show about Joni Mitchell yesterday, and and one of the yeah. most poignant. Parts of that program was just the realization hit me when I was listening to the show. I'm actually I'm tearing up thinking about it. That Joni Mitchell probably won't make another record. Oh, she is, she won't, she's yeah. not going to make another record, and she's going to be wheelchair bound or something for for the rest of her life, however long that is. And I think I more than anything else, I just want to say to Mick Jagger, I'm I'm glad that you're able to still hop around on stage yeah. and get the heart valve replacement. I don't know how he and Keith have done it all these I years. Mean, that's right. my biggest point. How is Keith still fine? Right. Keith of all people should be the one that should be going in for he's a heart really sink. He's that's pickled true. himself. He's right. just pickled himself. He's going to live forever. <laughs> Keith Richards will outlive us all. I'm guessing that's that's crossed Mick's mind too. Like, I'm why sure am I has. having heart? 
heart surgery. Look at him. Yep. Um, Keith might be donating right. his valve. But uh, maybe yeah, the, that's the inspiration right. for it, actually. But to James's point, you know, a lot of the news coverage has been like, well, this is like this incredibly easy kind of valve surgery. And you know, having just had my knee replaced, uh, what I've been telling people lately, lately about my knee replacement is, which you know, I mean, it's uh, what I say is. What you should, the way you should think about it is imagine that it happened on an unplanned basis. Like Colin was in the junkyard and some stuff fell on him and they had to take hammers and saws and like, you know, chop out the middle of his leg and like put some other stuff in there and everything. So probably not going to be seeing him for a while, yeah. you know. And I feel kind of the same way about valve replacement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, saying that everything's going to be fine in two days is yeah, like it just doesn't pretty really, optimistic. You know, yeah. that, but that's what they say. Anyway, all right. We're going to take a break so we'll have time to talk about Dumbo. But, of course, you might wonder, what's Mick Jagger going to say right after the surgery? All right, so uh, we are going to talk now about Dumbo. Dumbo has been revived. Uh, I guess that's the right word. Rebooted, remade. Uh, Tim Burton is directing this. Dumbo originally came out, I believe, in 1941. The movie's 64 minutes long. Uh, I mean, Dumbo didn't really fly to the end. Um, and so, but here we have a very different kind of thing. It's live action. Disney is kind of live actioning everything that they ever did in animation. We could talk about how we feel about that. Got kind of an interesting cast: Colin Farrell, Ava Green, Danny DeVito, Michael Keaton, Alan Arkin. So, uh, no, none of them appearing to have actually been directed by anybody, but um, <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily diminish our pleasure at them. So, um, I just can maybe go kind of going to go around the horn here to see how people are feeling about uh, this remake in general. Uh, uh, Rebecca, I'll start with you. Okay, I thought it was quite bland. Um, I had a hard time connecting with any of the characters. I didn't feel the pacing really pulled me into it. I checked my phone a couple times, which I don't like to do in movies. I wanted to know how much longer it was going to be. I thought the ending wasn't great. Some of the acting choices were confused. And as Colin said, it did seem like there were people acting under different direction across the board. So, yeah, I mean, it was... It wasn't bad. I, I almost wish it had been worse, so I could have at least gotten some pleasure from making fun of it. But it was just sort of like, eh. I, and I get, I'm not really sure who this movie's for. It's definitely not for kids. Oh. It's definitely not for 28-year-olds. So not really sure of the POV there. You Choices did, were made. You did not become verklempt at any time. I did not. All right. I actually did, but I'm easy. I'm very easy. James? Well, I have to say I mostly liked it. I mean, I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I did enjoy it. And I enjoyed it for its strangeness of choices in some ways. I think there were some unfortunate sort of tropes that, you know, were repeated. But um, I, I was noting, too, actually, that a lot of people had brought small children to the show that I went to, and they were all, almost all wailing. I mean, they, carried, they were carrying them out. Uh, through the film. It definitely isn't a small kids film. But um, I liked it for the fact that um, just the fact that you could take what I think, you know, the the original Dumbo is regarded 
sort of tentatively by Disney as a masterpiece, one of their <laughs> vault masterpieces. But if you actually look at it and look at the tropes in it and, and sort of see the racism and all the rest of it, there, there are a lot of troublesome things about it. And uh, I, I think it's a film. Uh, my feeling about Dumbo has always been it's kind of fun to study in film class and look at. Mm. But, uh, you know, if you show it to kids and sort of without any context, I mean, it seems like it's innocent enough, like so many things. But um, it, it really, uh, I don't think that in itself really was a kid's film either. Um, it had a very sort of adult overlay that, that mm-hmm. was a little creepy to me. Um, right. I mean, so, I mean, for example, the, what, the most famous sequence in the film is probably the pink elephants on parade sequence, which involves the baby elephant getting drunk, which, you know, we don't really yeah. do anymore. You know, James, since, <laughs> since I know you pretty well, uh, I feel like I have to ask you before I go to John about this. I mean, one of the weird things that gets done in this movie is the the villain in this movie is essentially Walt Disney. I mean, it's like yes, a blonde yeah. Michael Keaton as this kind of you know, kind of Aryan. <laughs> Somebody, some critic referred to him as business Beetlejuice, but I, I don't even think that's, it's really, that's really not quite right. But it's this guy who wants to make theme parks and basically right. corrupt entertainment in a certain way. Exactly. And you have to wonder, really, considering that Disney is, uh, these days, the company is, I think, is a little sensitive since they've become more mega by eating 20th Century Fox. And um, it's, it is interesting to me that, that you can read the story as being a, corporate critique kind of thing. And there are a lot of things that um, I can see the uh, the corporate people at Disney looking at and thinking, you know, well, hmm, Is this about us? Uh, who, us, you know? <laughs> and one of the things I like about, um, uh, about Tim Burton is that sometimes he has a sort of like a, an, a kind of acid view in the background of control and corporate control and it's almost sort of like a reaction to what he knows is people breathing down his neck about what the original what the final film is going to be like and um, I like the film because of that and I like the fact that at the end of it there was a sort of distillation of the circus as being something that's an entertainment for ordinary people and one of the last shots is of somebody wearing a mask which is going back to the beginning of entertainment, the simplest entertainment where people would pretend to be animals or pretend to be something else and um, I, I like that. There were elements like that I liked and I, I don't think it's a totally like, like I say, not a masterpiece but I, I liked it a lot and I didn't expect to. I thought uh, I do avoid critics. I avoid Avoid the uh, reviews before I see a film, so I saw it on without. I just knew that some critics hadn't liked it, but mm. I uh, generally I liked it. So, John, as we go to you, I'm going to yeah. uh, set you up with a, a clip too. Uh, we're going to because I know you're going to have some things to say about Mike, Michael Keaton's performance anyway. So, <laughs> you're going to hear Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito owns the kind of sl- slightly rundown Medici Brothers circus where Dumbo is initially discovered. By the way, the movie. This movie depends on the idea or the initial conceit of this movie is that if people saw a really cute baby elephant with huge big ears, they would hate it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which we know – I mean, that would break the internet today if there was a picture of a really cute <laughs> elephant with a baby elephant with really big ears. But anyway, Danny DeVito has uh, run that circus. And then a uh, horrible Michael Keaton is horrible. Mr. Vanderveer uh, shows up. Uh, he's interested in this elephant that it turns out can fly. I would like to offer you a drink, but now I'm all out of bourbon, drink, not and cognac and scotch. <laughs> <laughs> Not now. 
Set a monkey in your desk. Just for emergencies. Look, Mr. Vanderveer, I probably should tell you, the elephant is not for sale. Dumbo will only fly for the Medici Circus. That's assuming he is real. So take it away, John Dancock. Okay, so you hear very little of Michael Keaton in there. Um, I think Danny DeVito is a lot of fun in this movie, and you get a chance to hear him, and he drops little jokes in there about, you know, the monkeys just for emergencies. Um, the problem with this movie, from my perspective, <laughs> largely is that Michael Keaton as the bad guy is such an unconvincing bad guy who, as Colin, I think, quite rightly said, took no direction whatsoever or was given no direction by given Tim no Burton. Direction, yeah. I can't tell if the part he's he's playing is a bit of a dandy, someone who is uh, the the head of this large corporation who is supposed to be acting in a specific way, or he's kind of a street fighter con man who's going to have that kind of Batman voice when he talks. He's a almost every scene he's a different person, and he's not interesting enough in any of those ways to hold my interest. Danny DeVito, on the other hand, is a lot of fun. It's a very thin role. He's the head of the circus, and he he loves all the people in his circus. I think one of the biggest problems, James, with with this compared to the original Dumbo, which scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, because it really isn't a film for for kids. I don't think the original um, is that all of the animals that you know from the from the original are not replaced by people playing those parts. That the animals are essentially wiped out as characters, and there's a whole new cast of people. The problem is, is that some of the racist tropes and the other problems that happened in the original film get carried over somehow to this 2019 version. Yeah. Uh, one of the most problematic scenes in the original Dumbo is, is the crows, who are kind of jive-talking, obviously African-American characters, very, very racist stereotypes. That wasn't going to be in this new film. But it's replaced by a single character of color who is a black man who seems to be the servant of Danny DeVito. If you're going to erase racism from the movie, erase racism from the movie. Go all the way. Go all the way. Or not at all. It's very strange to me. I think think it's worth reminding people because I I also – so I I watched Dumbo a lot with my son maybe about 25 years ago. Um, And so these crows, they are a problem. I mean in a way they're sort of – a nice break in terms of all the sort of pathos and tension that uh, goes into this movie. Uh, but there's, they are so, so, so wrong. I think it's sort of worth reminding people how completely wrong they are. The ninth wonder of the universe! The wild zoni flying elephant! <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see an elephant fly? <laughs> well, I've seen a horse fly. Ah, I've seen a dragon fly. <laughs> I've seen a house fly. <laughs> see, I've seen all that too. I seen a peanut stand and heard a rubber band. I seen a needle that winked its eye. But I be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. What you say, boy? I said when I see an elephant fly. I seen a front porch swing, heard a diamond ring. I seen a polka dot railroad tie. But I be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. So, and uh, by the way, in the actual working script of this movie, the head crow is his name is Jim Crow, yeah. believe it or not, and the working script says that. So, so James, I, don't no, I mean, know. how uneducated could you be to do that, even in the 1940s? You know, I mean, to 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 actually call the character Jim Crow. I mean, that is either total lack of education 
or deliberate. Oh, it's definitely deliberate. And uh, yes, exactly. I would say it's more likely deliberate. And you know, it's so complicated, but I I think there's a hijacking of culture going on here in in apparent innocence because, okay, this is a kid's story, right? In quotes. But I'm thinking of things, taking that to the modern era and looking at these stories where they're supposedly about um, African-Americans, yet there's a white person, usually a white man, who is actually the, 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 the center of the story. It involves a white man who's a, like, like the humanization of the KKK, for example, that really there's a heart of gold beneath the racist. And therefore, you know, the, the, the black people have to support him and, and, and somehow bring out his heart of gold. And it, it's a long theme in Hollywood, I think. And I agree about that character, the strong man in, uh, in the new Dumbo, it, it's it's amazing to me that a character like that could get across now, considering that people, how can people claim to be ignorant about a, an image like that? And and having that as the only character, the only character of color who, of any significance in the film, how could that be? Uh, and and I think there's a serious uh, reappraisal needed about these stories and about where they come from and about the tropes that are repeated. And um, I, you know, much as I like the film, I sort of, you know, my eyes roll when I see these things. And, and you know, you, I had a discussion with a group of people about uh, green, green Book, you know, and we were talking about that. I was saying how, you know, this film doesn't involve the Green Book or the story of the Green Book or why you had to have a Green Book so that you didn't get killed with your family family when you stayed at a motel, that this was a really serious story. But yet it's all revolves around a thing where who gets the award as best actor? The white guy. Mm-hmm. And, and the black guy is the supporting actor when, I mean, the mind reels at that and you wonder how can these people look at the the, the, the advanced version of this film or look at the script and see that and say, well, you know, I think that we need to change that, maybe. To me, though, all of that gets to a foundational question. If you're not going to do a new Dumbo, say, that rewrites history, that writes the wrongs, that actually tells the story in a completely new and fresh way— why is it being made? Yeah. Why did we make it? Why did <laughs> Rebecca? Did we need a new Dumbo? I mean, well, you could satirize it. You could. You, you could, could have, and that's what I'm saying. If they had gone really dark and leaned into all of this and talked about this and the history of the movie, it might have just worked and been interesting and told us something new about the story, or completely removed all of that. You know, cleaned it up, spruced it up, made it for children. Actually, made a made children's it for, movie made a children's for Dumbo. Movie. Sure. Which but is, I think I, I think that's where you get the sort of corporate policy side sure. of things, which won't allow. Uh, you to take that route. I mean, I think there is some awareness within probably within the Disney higher levels where they're looking at the script and they're deciding things like yeah. that. And they don't want like somebody to come along and take, say, um, Alice in Wonderland. Or they did, actually. Yes, they did. Say, that <laughs> did happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, they, they don't want to take something that seems simple but isn't. Yeah. I mean, Dumbo is about as ripe for um, uh, satire and recasting yeah. as you could possibly get. And you could do so much with actually revealing what that is. But I agree, this film isn't and the, it. And the background of a circus, I mean, a circus has a long, rich history of, yeah, of yeah. racism and tropes right. and to actually... Exploitation. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, also, we've gotten rid of elephants from circuses right. now, too. Yeah. That's like, even that's not even... All of you know, that could have been, you know, you could have had a much darker movie, a much more adult movie, or a 
a clean, pure, happy childhood movie. But this movie was just like somewhere in between. I just want to say that I saw it yesterday. Like John and I had a similar experience of being the only person sitting in the movie theater uh, for each of us as we saw the, the movie. And I – because I, I refused to go with you. I just right. I, I would not sit in this movie theater with you. I had kind of an okay time, you know? I mean, it wasn't that terrible. I think my, my expectations have been kind of lowered anyway by everything that I'd heard, and I was reasonably happy with this. I do want to say one thing, which is that being the age that I am and having grown up in Hartford, you know, circuses and things catching on fire at circuses mm-hmm. and stuff. And mm-hmm. like, I didn't go to a circus for most of my life because the circus didn't come to Hartford because we'd had this circus my fire. My grandfather was in the circus fire. Yeah. Well, I think you might have mentioned that once before. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, it's just, it's so embedded. So, yeah, you're from a family where you heard those stories or whatever. And I mean... So there's like almost never any circus performance that we ever see in this movie where something isn't really going horribly wrong yeah. and things catch fire a lot. There was like, no, I was waiting for the montage where it was right. like, oh, Dumbo got famous and there was all these great successful shows. But it was like every show no, Dumbo every, was in ended in flames. No, and Alan, Alan Arkin, uh, <laughs> who also was just told he could do whatever he wanted to, is just sitting there the entire time going, well, I'm not going to put money into this. This is terrible. He literally <laughs> remarks at one point, he goes, well, this is a disaster. It, it doesn't even make sense <laughs> yeah. that this particular show is going to be able to make any money for anybody. That There's so much nonsensical about the way that this story is constructed. And I think that that's one of my biggest problems, frankly, with the movie is that because it's so nonsensical, make it nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Make it a Tim Burton Lean into it. strange movie that is not supposed to make any sense. But enough things are supposed to line up that when then when they don't, I feel at the I end of the day, I have not cared. I think that have to be made by somebody like, you know, uh, Megan Ellison's company or former company, Annapurna. You know, it would have yeah. been an art film yeah. um, and uh, very different. Um, but I think that... Uh, uh, actually, to the point of it making money, I think it. I think it will actually. Yeah, I mean, make I, money, I, I, I think, think a lot of this is sort of we can make money if we have Tim Burton remake. remake. That'll be a, there's a certain amount of money to be made here. Right. All right, we have to stop. But either go see the movie or don't. Alan Arkin is kind of funny. He's basically Waldorf and Statler wrapped into one person. Uh, we'll be back with endorsements. Today's show was produced by Lily Tyson with help from Betsy Kaplan. The part of Bill Curry was played by Johnny Depp. On Monday, we'll be back with a show all about pajamas. And now, back to Colin. All right. It's time to make some recommendations, endorsements, uh, things like that. Uh, John Dankosky, why don't you get us going? Okay. So these things are all connected. I promise they won't take long. Yesterday, as I said, Colin did an excellent show about Joni Mitchell, which included conversations with people talking about her songs. And uh, I can highly recommend everything in the show if you haven't heard it yet, but especially the segment where Tanisha Duggan, a friend of this program, talks about uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, the theme for Lester Young. Um, I can't say more about the the song itself than they did yesterday, but it got me thinking about their recording and some of the people who were on it, including Jaco Pistorius, the great bass player who you hear throughout uh, Joni Mitchell's Mingus. I, I want to recommend a, a little-known 1981 solo record of his called Word of Mouth, which has some amazing, interesting compositions. It's kind of a minor album in the Jocko uh, canon, but it's something that I think is worth seeking out. You also mentioned, Colin, when you are talking about Joni's strange guitar tunings, the great guitarist Michael Hedges, who died way too young in 1997. It's the 35th anniversary of Aerial Boundaries, which is probably the single most impressive piece of acoustic guitar work you could ever hear. If you're not a guitar nerd, 
you will love it. If you are a guitar nerd, you've already tried to play these songs before, but it's Michael Hedges' Aerial Boundaries on Wyndham Hill Records from 1984, and it's really, really something to listen to. So two old recommendations for you. There's a, there's a song of his called Jade Stock, I think, which I became oh, obsessed yeah. with at one point, uh, and still I'm mildly obsessed. Saw him play twice. He was an amazing performer. Died too young. All right, James. Um, well, I thought about this that for for some time, but I don't know. It's a, uh, sometimes a minor thing, but a major thing. I am so tired of reading about the current op- occupant of the White House um, and seeing pictures. I can't avoid the pictures, but I was inspired by Jacinda Ardern, the premier of New Zealand, uh, mm-hmm. who announced that she wasn't going to say the name of the murderer, the mass murderer in uh, New Zealand. And uh, so I just wanted to say uh, I hope Maybe some people will join me in um, actually excising the name of that occupant of the White House from their language and not speak it. He and you I should thought, not be named. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Worked with Voldemort. It could work this time. Yes. By the way, I, I'd like to endorse the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I love her. She's great. She's amazing. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, Rebecca. So I got two for you today. The first is Circus Smirkus, which is a nonprofit children's touring circus. And in fact, my mother sent me away to this circus when I was about 12 <laughs> years old for two weeks. They do uh, a summer camp where you can literally send your children and they can learn valuable life skills like the tightrope and walking on a rolling globe and trapeze, all of which I have dabbled in. And then they also have an incredible touring circus over the summer. The kids in it are anywhere from 11 to 18. They do the entire thing, all the clowns, all the tricks. Everything is done by kids. Uh, They'll actually be in Simsbury this summer on the 30th and 31st at the Meadows. They're doing four shows. I've seen their shows since I was a little, little girl, and they always will just take your breath away. I I just – my my dad always said, I'm going to send you off to the circus. My parents went through it. They actually did it. Yeah, Yeah. knowing also that my grandfather was in the circus fire, they still sent me away (laughs) to circus camp. So uh, I was one of those 12-year-olds that clearly my parents were trying to get me out of the house. So. Circus Camp, Circus Smirkus, highly recommend. Great for kids, great for adults. You'll be mind blown. The second is a book I'm reading right now called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Uh, It's a really, really interesting take on the post-apocalyptic narrative. It basically deals with the story of a Hollywood actor and simultaneously this group of Shakespearean actors and musicians that form this traveling symphony that go around through all these outposts and kind of try and preserve some culture and what's left of humanity. And I'm really enjoying it so far. And I thought it kind of dovetailed nicely into the Dumbo story. So Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel, highly recommend. So some weeks I wonder if I've got anything, you know, because like I have to do this pretty much every week. This week I'm in great shape. So we we tape Saturday Night Live every week. I don't know why that is. And then we watch it and I mostly sit there going, you know, this is really not that funny. So um, I was doing that on Sunday and I was about to eat my lunch and I said, I'm going to watch something else. And I'm just going to pick the first Netflix comedy special I can find whether I've heard of the person or not. So I wound up watching this thing called The Tennessee Kid uh, featuring this guy named Nate Bargatze. And it kind of started off slow. And by the end, I'm screaming, laughing, mm-hmm. gasping for breath, although his delivery is so low energy and very, very Southern. And then I had to kind of hunt back and find where he'd been introduced on Netflix through a series they had called The Stand-Ups. Uh, this guy has a really, really novel approach to, to stand-up comedy. It's very, very different from everybody else's. Uh, and it, it, it did take me about 15 minutes to pick up this guy's rhythm, but it was very exciting once I did. So uh, Nate Bargatze, the the Tennessee kid. Um, So we're going to end in a slightly different way than we typically do. Uh, A couple of months ago, Sam Hadleman was on the nose. Uh, He's, I think, our youngest nose panelist uh, ever. Uh, And sorry, Rebecca. They usurped. (laughs) They usurped. 
right. So and and so during the endorsements, I had forgotten this, but his endorsement was of uh, Nipsey Hussle, uh, and so uh, Sam and I were kind of texting back and forth this week, and I said, you know, you should come back on and explain this whole thing again because I think also for a lot of us it just isn't maybe something we've entirely connected with. So um, so you, this is Sam Hattleman. Uh, we talked to him uh, earlier today. I talked to him about uh, bagels made in Brooklyn water down in Florida, but mainly uh, we had the conversation that you're going to hear right here. Hi, Colin. Great to be here. Yeah. Calling the Piazzo rappers, I feel like it doesn't really encapsulate his essence. Mm-hmm. Really, he's an entrepreneur, community member. Uh, he was recognized so much that the chief of police of the LAPD was completely shocked when they saw his name come up on the on the crime report. That if you saw an interview, uh, they they were completely bewildered by the fact that he was a victim of violence in his area. But yeah, he was an uh, independent artist, Grammy nominated recently. Just a huge inspiration. And so, t- tell us what you liked about him. Personally speaking, I liked his business model. I think I've always struggled with the fact that I've wanted to be in the music industry and be involved in it, but I don't want to run it dry like a lot of the other characters in the business. But the way that Nipsey Hussle operated was he owned all of his own music. And as I said on your show, he sold a lot of his music at an extremely high price point, like selling his free mixtapes for $100 or $1,000 while only making 100 copies. Mm. And that business model in itself kind of inspired me to think that there's a way to to morally work in this music business by giving money to the people who are making the music. That's a really, really great point. Well, what we want to do here is end the show with uh, a little bit of his music. We had you pick out a track. Tell us what we're about to hear. It's called Dedication. It's off his Grammy-nominated record, Victory Lap. And it is just one of the the many tidbits of his motive. I I kind of compare his music to, like, sermons for myself. Mm -hmm. There's so much inspiration in his lyrics and... It's us kind of all about finding your self-worth and finding your passion and doing anything you can to strive to get closer to that. And that's really what his music makes me think of and feel, is that this is someone trying to tell me the best way to be the best me I can be. Well, listen, Sam Handelman, first of all, thanks for educating us a little bit more about Nipsey Hussle. And uh, Lily Tyson, thanks for producing today. And Lily's going to play us out with that exact track. Thank you. This ain't entertainment. It's folks on the slave ship. These songs just the spirituals I swam against them waves with. Ended up on shore today, amazement. I hope the example I set's not contagious. Lock us behind gates, but can't tame us. Used to be stay safe, now stay dangerous. Cause ain't no point playing defense. That's why I dove off the deep end. Do it out of life, Jack. Couple mil, tour the world, all my life cracking. The books, bring it back so there's no taxes, royalties, publishing, plus our own masters. I'd be damned if I slay for some white. So I was mapping this out, I hit the heights backwards. Topping out the 85 and rebot classes. Read a couple marathons just to get established to make it happen. You got to have dedication, hard work, plus patience. To some more of my sacrifice, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting. Told you that I wasn't playing. Now you hear what I've been saying. Dedication. dedication.